Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages. Today I speak with a dear friend of mine, Maggie Blinko. Maggie is an octogenarian and carries with her a lifetime of experiences that fuel each character she plays. As an actor, she claims to be in a category all of her own as far as roles go, especially when there doesn't seem to be many roles for actors in her age bracket. She didn't come to acting until late. Having done theatre at university, it wasn't until her late 30s that she turned professional. So how has she managed longevity in what can be a pretty tough industry? And what are the work opportunities like when you're in your 80s? Embracing all mediums, she has done it all, television, film, and made a mark creating many wonderful characters in the theatre, from classical to contemporary repertoire. Maggie is also a fine cook and a great raconteur. She's the inventor of Dinch, a Sunday afternoon gathering between lunch and dinner where she gathers a cast of impressive characters to chew the fat and wax lyrical over a tremendous banquet prepared by the perfect hostess, Maggie Blinko. So you're not in bad company? I certainly am not. Because we can talk about your age, can't we? Oh yes, of course. Yes. I don't try to hide anything. <laughs> um, so you're 84, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Just turned 84 in April. Um, don't feel it. Well, you're pretty a pretty fit 84 year old. Of I go to the gym twice a week, and I do a variety of exercises. I sometimes wonder whether it's doing me any good, but I know it is. Oh yes. Um, it's a chore at times, isn't it? But yes, it is. But yeah, you just have to convince yourself, and, and it's yes. a fact. It does do you good. You feel better. Mm. It's a I'll use it or lose it. Mm. And I'm really busy with all sorts of projects that I love. Um, because of my varied existence over eighty-four years, I seem to have lived many lives. I have lots of interests from years ago. I mean, last September, I was on holiday and I started something I'd wanted to do for about 50 years. When I was involved with the uh, antique business, we started out, I started out selling fantastic vintage clothing. Vintage clothing like you'd never seen in your life. Victorian night dresses. Nineteen twenties beaded dresses. Where would you come across these in, um, in deceased estates and? Uh, well, people would. Uh, I'd advertise, and people would ask oh, drop me to them come. Off. And you know, you'd you'd pull dresses and things out that had never been worn. It was extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. Anyway, over the years, I gathered uh, scraps of fabulous fabrics. The, from a range of Victorian fabrics through to, to modern ones, really. I just couldn't bear to throw them away. There were two or three bags of them. And because early in my buying career, I had found an amazing patchwork coat made out of, I think it was done in the 30s because most of the fabrics were prior to that date or including the 30s. And uh, and I wore it for ages. Lucy's got it now, my daughter, but it's it needs repatching now. But it was absolutely wonderful, and I thought one day I want to do that, and now I have. Last September I started it, 
And I thought it would take me years, but in fact the patching went very quickly. And I had it, the best part about it, of course, was arranging all the fabrics. I love fabrics and I love colour. So it was just endlessly fascinating to me. And and your mind is working all the time. And then you're stitching. I was I cross stitched every patch. And it's just and it looks wonderful. I'm just literally finishing it off now. And and I will wear it to some fabulous theatrical entertainment sometime. <laughs> uh, you're also um, uh, cooking. Uh, yes. As a as a um, an occupation that was a side occupation you had when acting, but also just cooking for friends yes. is a big part of your life as well, isn't Huge. it? Huge. Yeah. Huge. What do you I like about? I would ha- I, I would have people come every fortnight if I could, but I can't afford it. So I have to choose uh, times when I've got. I think I've got the money, and also. I, I I used to generally have 10 to 12 people, sometimes even 14. They'd be crammed around that table. And what what a, a table that has been sometimes. I've been a guest there and uh, it's extraordinary the people who turn up. But now I realise that that's all a bit too much for me and I try to restrict it to eight. Right. But that means I can't ask as many people as I want to. So it's very disappointing when you can't come if I've thought, oh, well, I'll get him in on the eight. Yeah, yeah. But you'll get there sometime soon. Absolutely. But the, the, the buzz is, is electric. It's fantastic. Yeah. What, what do you enjoy about having people around? Is it that familial thing which... Um... Well, do you know, I, I've, I've been writing about my past recently and I, I think I've traced back that to the fact that when I was very young, my grandmother had a f- grandmother and grandfather had a farm at Epping. I know that sounds unlikely, but Epping, when I in 1934, was semi-rural. Right. I mean, there was a peach orchard up the street, yeah. and uh, it was in um, Ray Road, Epping, and they had about four acres there. I think I don't know. I can't remember. Might have been more. Um, and every Easter and Christmas, the whole family would come. So the, I had cousins galore and, uh, and all these aunts. <laughs> my aunts played a big role in my life, I think, just for the drama of, the, of their lives and everything, you know. But um, I... I loved those feasts. They would extend the table in the whole family. I mean, my grandmother had seven children, I think, six girls and one boy. The boy was never there. He was always overseas or doing something very upmarket. We'll talk about him later. But but, uh, they'd all come with their partners. And... uh, and it would be absolutely massive. And Grandma would bring out all her pretty little Edwardian dishes and, and carnival glass. That's, I remember carnival glass from then. And, and I loved her kitchen, you know. And she made the best plain cake I've ever eaten in my life. And I, I don't even know how to make plain cake now. But I know it wouldn't be the same because she cooked everything in a fuel stove. 
everything. Wow. And I and love that, that, that place. That's quite a feat, isn't it, to adjust temperatures and the, yeah, the sensitivity yeah. of the oven. The, interestingly enough, her youngest daughter, Heather, who was born down here, all the others were born up in Orange, in East Guyong, because they had a farm up there. But it burnt down, and they came down to Sydney. And um, But my youngest aunt, Heather, uh, she married and moved across the road, still in Ray Road, but they built a, a modern house, a 1930s modern, a modern house. And But she insisted on having a fuel stove as well as a modern stove built into her kitchen because that's what she'd grown up cooking with. And, and she made the most amazing cakes and fantastic pastry. And anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a different flavour altogether, isn't it? I grew oh, yeah, up. It is. We had a wooden stove, you know, um, and Mum used to cook roast, the Sunday roast. Yes. Just, I've never tasted one the same mm. from an electric or a gas stove, but there's something never. about the wood stove which absolutely just creates an extraordinary flavour. It must flavor. be the encompassing heat, which is they can they know how to knew how to control it. Yeah. And it, it's it. Yes, I agree. I agree. The roast potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, that, that was a time when you'd cook with um, dripping or, or lard. Oh, yes. You'd have the dripping pot, and, yes. and that's what you'd use for Absolutely. Week to week. Yeah. We had a neighbour called Mrs. Smith. She was from North Country somewhere, and uh, she and her husband and I could hardly understand sometimes. But I'd go in to visit Mrs. Smith, and she'd um, fry me bread in dripping. In, in the saved dripping from roast. I loved it. My mother t- totally disapproved. <laughs> Even then, my mother knew somehow that it was not very good for you. But it tasted good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. I, but I was a picky eater. I didn't eat very much. I didn't... The, I was a great fruit eater, though. And, um, and still am. But... Um, but I didn't really understand about cooking until I left Australia. And I, and then my eyes were opened as to... I Be, mean, because, because I Because of the various... You went to London. You talked yeah, about the various Europe, London, European and, influences. And, yes. And, and, of course, I was there just when Elizabeth David was writing all her books. Right. And that was all a rev- an amazing revelation. And because I was mixing with different people who understood about wine and about good food, I, I, I picked it all up then. Was that a path that you thought you might have gone down? Could you have been a what, Margaret Fulton? Or? No, I don't think so. No, that didn't interest no. you enough? It was just more a, the, the hobby of it all? I, I think there's a fatal weakness in me. I've decided that uh, what's wrong with me is that I'm too... Uh, I'm a jack-of-all-trades. I, I love the cooking. I, I love the sewing. I love the knitting. I love the beaching, the swimming. <laughs> I love the acting. And I, and I really liked the, the, uh, the you know, the, the antique business. But I've never... I've never perfected any of them, I don't think. Oh, you've, I'd say you're pretty close in a few of them. <laughs> um, anyone who's eaten at your place will see you on stage. Um, so 1934, where did you grow up? Uh, five Dock. 
But it was a very okay. Peculiar. So you're a Sydney girl. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally Sydney. What do you love about Sydney? Used to love. Oh yeah, not so much mm. anymore. Okay. Well, so what's it? happening to it? Well, yeah, we were talking about that earlier. It's just um, it's become overpopulated, isn't it? And it's not so just no overpopulated, but what they're doing is making it ugly. I mean, how dare they chop down those trees in mm. Anzac Parade of all places? Yep. It could have been done differently. Most, I think most of this stuff could be done differently, but the developers are not interested in beauty or environment. They're just interested in making money. I mean, I, when I grew up, the bush was still very close. Yes, yeah. And, and even in my... So you're talking about five dock? Because you couldn't imagine that now, but... No, but I mean, if the place where I live, funnily enough, it was five dock, but it wasn't five dock proper. It was right in the middle of Abbotsford, Chiswick, Dremoyne, Five Dock, Russell Lee. So it was in a very peculiar spot and the bay was just down there, the, the Parramatta River. We used to walk down the street and I used to paddle in the Parramatta River. Wow. And also in those days in the Parramatta River, they had um, swimming pools, uh, timber swimming pools. And we'd go down to Abbotsford where there was one. We'd walk down to Abbotsford and swim. And oh, there were swimming pools like that all around. And it, I mean, it might have been dangerous, but I don't think it was as polluted then as, as it is, as it became later. Um, but it, so we had access to different things to what people have access now. We could walk to places, you know. And I used to, with my sister, I used to walk to Dremoyne swimming baths. And, um, and instead of getting the bus home, we'd spend our tuppence on chips or something. <laughs> walk. <laughs> yeah, walk home. But um, it was a very different life and, and it was freer and less crowded. I, I, yeah, look, I... We, we, we had a, the bush uh, as our backyard as well and you'd disappear oh. and play with the bikes and all that sort of... The that's only right. rule was you had to be home when the streetlights went on. That's right. Yes, <laughs> it was like that. No one locked their door. A That's different right. time. No, yeah. no, a very different time. Yeah, it was. And uh, while I understand that, that we have many more people and that we have to accommodate them, we don't have to blot out everything that's really wonderful about this this city and this country. Yep. And unfortunately, people who make up government now are no longer from the people. Some of our greatest politicians. The elite, were, aren't they? It, it, they're um, the elite now. They come through they have the money university to put them there. and yep. uh, and their lawyers. The lawyers and, and yes, and I don't think they ever have worked in in a working class situation. Most of them. Well, no one's ever travelled on the Strathfield train line. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's extraordinary. You know, I went out to Cogra the other night and, and, and standing up all the way and it, it was just unbearable for people and they do this daily. Yes. You know, I, the politicians need to ride the trains. Anyway, we're digressing. Yeah. <laughs> Siblings? You talk about a sister One sister. One, only one sister, the two mm. of you. Right. Mm. And she was born in 1928 at the beginning of the Depression and I think they simply couldn't afford to have another child until 1934 when I came along. So there was a big difference between the way my sister was brought up, I think, and I was. I was really spoiled compared to her. And, I mean, she was a totally different character and um, a rather dreamy sort of person. And suddenly she had this bumptious little Taurian, little bull, in her life. I don't think she quite enjoyed it. We used to fight bitterly, but we did love each other very dearly. And But our lives were very different, very different. I think she ended up disapproving of me. But, but I'd, it, I'd come from a slightly more liberal background. That six years that set us apart in experience. I mean, for instance, she... She mustn't have had any of the toys and things that I had because they wouldn't have been able to afford it. My father lost all his money. He was an excellent French polisher and he had invented uh, a polish which he was marketing with a friend. And when the depression came, the friend took all the money and took off. Oh, wow. Yeah. So suddenly Dad was bankrupt. Yeah. And... um, Somebody got him a, a job at AWA, and that was that was the biggest event in his life that that changed everything for him. So, um, so um, various times, perhaps of hardship, coming on the tail of the depression and and all that sort of thing. I never w- saw it that way. No. Um, no. So, what about piano lessons, ballet lessons? Um, anything like no, that? No, I didn't but... get anything like that. Oh. oh, I did. At one stage I did. Mum had played the violin. And uh, and I took her violin and I, 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 I did lessons, but I was not good at it. I wasn't good at reading music. And I tended to... Uh, the greatest crime with violin work is trying to... <laughs> to um, uh, uh, play w- by where the fingers should be. You should be reading the music. You know? <laughs> anyway, I was very lazy and I, I didn't do very well with that. My sister learned piano eventually. We got my grandmother's, the only two things saved from the fire, apparently, up in East Guyong, were the, the, the sewing machine and the piano. And we ended up with the piano at one stage and Val learned the piano, but... But no, no, I didn't learn anything like that. You should have got the sewing machine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the sewing machine, the sewing machine, a girl's best friend. (laughs) When Betty Hutton came out with that song, I knew all about it. Um, Well, Mum made all our dresses. She made all our clothes and her own. Mm. She was good. Mm. You talk about your aunts and the influence... They oh, had on you. well, I mean, are these you your, know. your mother's sisters or, or yeah, dad's? Yeah, mother's sisters. They were all Mondas. Um, the, the oldest one was Lila, and she was born with a twin, but the twin died 
at birth. And then the next one was Amy. Now both Lily and, uh, Lila and Amy had blue eyes and tended to be a bit on the plump side. Then came Gertrude with the Monda black eyes, brown eyes, very dark brown eyes. And then Ida, my mother, then Hilda, and then, and eventually Jack. I don't know, and he had blue eyes. And finally Heather, who had brown eyes. She was a true Monda. I say Monda because grandfather had those, uh, that, that's who we took after. It was a real family resemblance. I've got a wonderful picture of three, of, of Ida and Heather and Hilda together. And they looked like peas from a pod. And they all had varying experiences in life. And, you know, the, the uncles were always a mystery to me. Their husbands? Yeah. Right. So, I, so I don't think I liked any of them. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack travelled a bit, did he? Jack, well, I don't know how much I can tell you about Jack, but Jack was very beautiful. He looked like Brian Ahern. He was so, so 1920s, 30s. And he and his wife, Auntie, Auntie Dulcie, who was exquisite, absolutely exquisite, were exhibition dancers in the fashion of the time, like Fred Astaire and... Uh, Ginger Rogers. Ginger Rogers. Mm. They would do exhibition dancing. The, the clothes that came to us when she died were just absolutely stunning. You know? But, mind you, Auntie Hilda got most of those, and my cousin... Cousin Berenice got them, but um, but he was exotic. I mean, as far as we were concerned, I can remember him. I must have only been about three. He turned up at the door and said, "I want to take the girls for a drive." And I that's it's the first time I think I ever was taken to the eastern suburbs. Of course, I can remember Rose Bay as we drove. You know that amazing Rose yes, Bay. Yes. Yep. Whenever I go through Rose Bay now, I think about Uncle Jack. And yet I don't remember very much about that, that drive or that visit. He built a house in Vaucluse, uh, which was in the Herald. I'm going to try to track it down. Yeah. I've got photos of it as, as it is now. It's still there. But it, it was um, architecturally designed and it was totally modern, you know, with glass bricks and curving stairways and totally art deco. And uh, he was very successful. But he fell into the hands of a gentleman whose name I can never remember, and probably for the for this it's best not to remember, but he, 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 he headed up uh, uh, an investment down in South Australia of pine forests, I think it was. And I think it was a bit like the South Sea Bubble. <laughs> the, there weren't any right. forests. And he had to leave Australia. 
because it all came crashing down, I think. So, um, and he didn't didn't come back until about 1940. I was very young, and he he was very unbalanced. Right. He had suffered syphilis at some stage in his life, and the treatment for that then was pretty disastrous. And it, I think there were inspections of uh, injections of arsenic into the spinal cord or something like that, which eventually destroys the nervous system and mm. anyway he was crackers extraordinary so what what were the artistic influences uh, as a child then oh mum uh, mum yeah, I think playing the violin and yes, did you go to the did. movies all the time yeah. every Saturday Arvo right. god that was important oh yeah Saturday Arvo and during the war of course everything was rationed and I became an absolute whiz at getting across the road to the Greek milk bar, shoving with my elbows, because I was tiny, shoving with my elbows. Hardly's milk bar! Hardly's! Hardly's bar! Hardly's bar! It's probably where I developed my hideous voice. And, and, uh, but also I'd go there. We went to the Odeon in Tremoyne. Dremoyne was more important to us than, than any of the other suburbs because we had to go to Dremoyne to get into town. We'd get a tram into town. We'd get a bus which came down from Chiswick and we'd go up to Dremoyne. We'd get a tram to ride if we wanted to get up to Epping Way and we'd get a tram into town. And um, so, and I eventually ended up at Dremoyne Public School. But um, when I was a, child, a tiny tot, I went to Russell Lee Kindergarten. But, I mean, artistic... Look, Mum was a great reader. And right from the word go, I was a great reader too. She, I think I was ahead of my class. When I finally went to school, I knew how to read. And, and uh, I can remember we had brown readers and blue readers and all sorts of things. And I remember I, got, I think I got through my blue reader really quickly and they got me a brown reader before anybody else. So, and I loved stories and mum fed me books. I mean, and I didn't like dark chocolate and all the Easter eggs then were dark chocolate. And so she'd get me books instead, you know. So I, that was my life, reading. I loved reading. When did you discover the theatre? Was that university? No. My mother took me to the theatre, actually. Would you believe that I saw Gladys Moncrief? Our Glad. Our Glad. When she was really rather stout. And Max... Old Acre? Yeah. Was her red shadow. And so I saw a couple of those old musicals done by those people. Great. Yeah, at the Theatre Royal. I loved the Theatre Royal. Um, I was one of those people who went and tried to stop it being torn down. But That's criminal, isn't it, how we've lost our yes, because theatre what they, heritage? What, what they put up instead was just appalling. More high-rise. Absolutely. But the theatre that they replaced it with, it doesn't work. Yeah. 
I've worked there, I know. It's hideous. Unhealthy. The sidelines are hopeless. What, designed by people who don't understand theatres? That's right, and it's still happening, isn't it? So when did you start performing? Well, at kindergarten... Oh, OK. ..I was chosen to be Mary Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? Yes. And I walked along a row of little flowers, little children. My best friend, Joan Butcher, was there. She was being a very grumpy flower. And I had a little watering can and I was watering away, except that there wasn't any water. There wasn't supposed to be any water. And a bit of water fell on my best friend. Oh, I copped it later on. (laughs) So that was my first, you know. And I used to sit on the step into the kitchen and singing... One day my prince will come. <laughs> I used to sing all the Because Snow you'd White sing Snow White, things. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we were taken to the cinema. We saw everything. The cinema was huge in our lives. I saw Fant- the Fantasia when it came out. Oh, brilliant. I was gobsmacked. Yes, it must have been extraordinary to anything you'd seen before. I mean, Disney taking off with those fabulous animated films. Really, it was quite an amazing feat. When you look back on it, you think, you know, why on earth did Disney do it? All that classical music. But not only classical, what about the the Stravinsky with all those dinosaurs? (laughs) What I know about dinosaurs started there. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. (laughs) So... Um, yes, there was all of that, but I don't remember being theatrical. I discovered that I had a singing voice when I was about 11, 11 or 12, uh, uh, primary school, because... um, we had a lovely singing teacher. Of course, in those days, we all learned harmonies and we learned wonderful old folk songs or proper songs or but we we learned harmony it's not taught today they keep singing all this modern stuff and and they sing to records it's very upsetting to go to a school today and hear that anyway um she discovered that I had a very good ear, a, a, a very good pitch, I think, and that I could hold uh, a, a third part very well. So she gave me a lot of songs to sing where I was singing descants because I had quite a range from fairly low to high. And and so I was singing third parts and descants and second parts and and then I I we went off to join in that year we we had to learn uh, um, oh what's it called um, um, Hansel and Gretel and the one where Hansel and Gretel are dancing together and. Um, and we joined the school, the combined school choir. So we learned all this stuff 
so that when we all got together, we could all sing it. And the boys would take Hansel's part and the girls took Gretel's part. And, um, and that was an absolute delight. Uh, that was an extraordinary experience for me to, to go into a choir of schools that big and hear that sound. Beautiful. Wonderful. And I, I, I still remember some of that. And there was a little boy called John behind me and um, we got talking and we really liked each other. We were both 11 and we started to write to each other and John's mother, I think he, he, I think he lived up in Roseville. Of course, we were still in Five Dog. And uh, I think that's the first time in my life I understood that perhaps there was some sort of inequality in class inequality. Right. Because his mother rang my mother and suggested that we. No, yeah. really. Mm. I didn't quite understand why. No, no, you wouldn't. Because Mum didn't want to explain to me, but she, I think... I mean, in retrospect, I understood. I finally understood what that was about. Let's jump to adulthood and when you first started treading the boards. Okay, it was in high school and we had two amazing teachers... It was in fourth and fifth year. Uh, there were only two years for the leaving then. It was called the leaving. And uh, in the fourth year, uh, Mrs. Rice, Marjorie Rice and Helen Logan, who taught, both taught English and history. And um, they, they were great mates. And... Marjorie, I think, had been an actress, but she'd fallen off a horse or something, and she had a really bad limp. Uh, she'd broken a hip, I think, and, and probably in those days it was very hard to mend hips. But anyway, she she had the most wonderful voice and it and diction, and um, and she directed us in Quality Street, J M Barry's Quality Street, and I was Aunt Susan. And I was very funny. By then, I, I was the size <laughs> so, of an elephant, and I, I was very funny. So you were seeing the funny character lady parts from, yes. from early on. Yes. They're the best parts. <laughs> yes. And um, my father and mother came to see it, and my, fa- my father couldn't believe it. He, I mean, I think he had a very strange attitude to me because I, I mean you know puberty came and I, I just got huge I had huge boobs would you believe I don't remember them growing I mean they, they, I was a size 44 or something and I don't remember them growing but anyway he I mean and he always said oh you would have made a great forward <laughs> <laughs> but he it, 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 you know he just sat there and he was full of wonder at me doing all this silly stuff on the stage and then uh, the year after, I think I did um, oh, something else. I, I can't remember, but she she used to take us all away. She had a place up at Newcastle, and we'd all go up there on the train. Sometimes she'd drive us. She had a big car, and uh, you know that that twisty road. None of this modern stuff, you know. 
And we'd go up there and we'd spend a week of the holidays or something up there. And we would read Noel Coward and Shakespeare and we'd work on our Hamlet. We were doing Hamlet for the leaving. Uh, We'd do all this extra work. And Helen Logan sometimes would come. And... um, and I mean, they were just wonderful teachers, I can't tell you. She changed my life. She absolutely, totally changed my life. And the group of girls included a girl called Pat Pearson, who was wonderfully talented. She came from a theatrical family. And look, we, we, am I talking too much no, about early years? No, I love it. I love and, it. And Pat was multi-talented. She was awfully good at acting. She was a wonderful pianist. She was just totally fabulous. She always took the male roles because she was tall and slim and, you know, and could gesticulate all the right ways. And um, her mother had been a singer and her father... Anyway, look, that's something else. But but, um, she was talented. Then there was... uh, Margaret, oh, it's terrible. Um, uh, I'll remember them. I'm just a bit too excited at the moment. But every one of those girls had some sort of great talent or sensitivity. And as a group, we were brilliant. I don't know why, how it happened, but we called ourselves the Buck Rabbits. God alone knows why. That's the, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Buck Rabbits. Buck Rabbits. Yeah. Don't know why. But there was Val McNamee who was red-headed and practical and she'd always be the stage manager. And uh, Zoe, wonderful Zoe, who played the violin and had an English complexion like a rose. And uh, and Meg, whose parents were um, very active communists and was she was always talking to the teachers as though she was grown up. She was very grown up for her age. And... Um, Oh, it was just the most wonderful group of people. Are, are these girls that you remain friends with throughout no, your life? No, unfortunately. No, you, you tend to lose contact after high school, don't you, yes. with, with a lot of people? Well, they went off and, uh, you know, Meg and Anne went off and to become nurses and they became nurses. I, I stayed in touch with them because, for quite a while, because their, uh, Meg's brother had one of those old, huge old Ford jalopies and he could take about 10 people in it and we'd go on picnics and things. And also, we would all go to the youth concerts. We'd, you know, park ourselves in the street the night before and and uh, with sleeping bags and things and we'd wait to, to get the best tickets. So we all went to the youth concerts together. So it was a very creative time in learning creative time in my life oh. and so I saw a, a little notice up about the Players Theatre was looking for for actors so I went and auditioned and they loved me so the Players Theatre was the university no, players? Suds no, was Suds the, right. was the traditional one Suds and Players was a, a breakaway group right and it was being run by some very interesting young people. And, uh, and the first play I did up there was Arsenic and Old Lace, 
And of course, I was one of the old ladies. So there it was at the age of 19, I think, playing arsenic and old ladies. That was very fun. That There was a funny incident in that that I just adored. We had an amazing set. It really was a wonderful set. You'd swear that it was the inside of an old brown, brownstone house in Brooklyn or somewhere. And um, But being a university set, it was perhaps not quite as strong as it should be. <laughs> and we had a wonderful uh, actor doing um, Boris, the Boris Karloff look-alike. And there was a scene in it where he's pounding on the front door and the old aunts are creeping down the stairs. And my line was, and, and just as he was pounding in the door, the whole side of the, <laughs> the, the set fell in. And my first line was, I wonder who that can be. <laughs> With a heavy line. Yes, <laughs> we just broke up completely, you know. And you had to keep going. It was so funny, you know. It was. I mean, there were things like that that happened at university all the time. Anyway, they popped me into reviews. I did a review in 1955, and then I did another one in 1957. And I met uh, an extraordinary man called Tom Worsley, who was one of the wittiest people I've ever known. And uh, and. I don't think I did any more plays there. I can't remember. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, my God, I played Hecuba in a Greek tragedy and I was just lost. I had no idea what I was doing. Lindsay Brown, the critic. In those days, critics used to critique what was going on at the university because there wasn't much theatre anywhere else. Oh, right, and yeah. the university, Suds in particular, were the only people who were doing classics. You know, because um, on the main stages in Sydney, what we only had what the old tote, the Elizabethan Did Trust. Did even have that Theatre at Trust? this stage? I don't think. Right. We uh, the Elizabethan Theatre Trust came along. The theatre JCWs. Yeah. So the, the only were... independent one really was um, the Independent. Right. Up up in at, uh, yeah. North Sydney, mm. and that Doris was the Sydney. only school. So, but then the ensemble one started. It wasn't the ensemble then, of course, but it was, uh, you know, the, that American... Hayes Gordon. Mm, Hayes Gordon came out. And, uh, and that started eventually. Um, but I didn't know anything about all of this, really. And then we had wonderful review at Phillips Street. The Phillips Street Theatre started. And... Um, but before then, we had some odd review. I can remember some reviews up at the Metropolitan Theatre, which is now the Actors School. Um, but yeah, there wasn't much. And if you wanted to see classical theatre, like Restoration, you went to the university to see what they were doing up there. Huh. So you you became professional quite late, didn't you? Very is it late. Your late thirties. Yeah. Well, I didn't know how to become an actress. I had no idea. Uh, what about the people you were working with at university? Were, were they going on to become actors, or no. that was just a hobby for them while they were? That was a hobby. Yeah. 
they were all going into other professions, you know. And, the and then was... in 1960, yeah. I, I can't remember how I met Leo Schofield. I have no idea how I met Leo Schofield, but he became very important in my life. He wasn't at uni? No. A lot of people think he was, but he never went to university. But he knew that that's where all the clever people were. Right. So he spent a great deal of time. With that clique? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and he asked me to go back to university to, to do the 1960 review, which was called Nymphs and Shepherds. <laughs> and by then I'd <laughs> left it all behind. I never graduated because I'd wasted too much time doing... Theatre. Theatre. Mm. And, and I was just got very lazy. Anyway, um, <laughs> I did go back and do Nips and Shepherds and that had the most amazing cast in it. Really, it, it, was, it was just extraordinary. Um, Anne Schofield, who was then Anne O'Neill, was there and uh, she'd just finished doing a play with... Uh, um, Ken Haller at university. So there were all these these people around, you know. And um, and by then, I think Richard, where it must have been up there, yes, because he or he remembered seeing me in Victoriana and and reviews and things. And John Bell must have been up there by then. Leo had marvelous sort of contacts because he was working at Farmers then. He just made it his business to know everybody you know that could be useful to him and he was a very clever man wonderful organizer that was his great talent entrepreneuring and organizing and I went off overseas and it just so happened that Leo Schofield was on the same ship as I was and a few other really interesting people we had a wonderful time drank rum and coke all the way over can remember that's where Leo said, you've got fabulous legs, Maggie. And I thought, yes, I have, haven't I? But Mum had good legs and so did Dad. <laughs> Dad had beautiful legs. He was a great swimmer. But while we were in England, we'd become enamoured with looking for old things because that was the fashion in those days. And we were there when Carnaby Street started. We were there when everybody was was looking for the old and f and and when vintage clothing suddenly came into fashion that was the time in the in the early 60s when when it all happened in London it was sensational to be there the Beatles I remember Pat Daisy coming home one night and said I've just been to a wonderful club and there was this fabulous band and they were doing the twist you know and she showed us how and suddenly we're all doing the twist so you know it, it everything was happening and it was very exciting and we became enamoured of I mean in Australia you went to the beach or you went bushwalking or something like that but in London you couldn't do that so you went looking for antiques and we learned a lot and then when we came home, we just kept on looking. But it would, there weren't the avenues in Sydney that there were in London. I mean, like every Saturday, we'd head for Portobello Road, you know, and look for stuff. And but what a great opportunity to start that here. Yeah. yeah. And Leo and Anne came home at the same time. They came home about a week ahead of us. 
and she'd had Nil in London. Oh God, Nil was amazing, an amazing child, and um, and they too were looking. And we 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 kind of found our level, you know. There were shops then in in Australia that that dealt in secondhand goods, just secondhand goods. And and we gradually found out where they were. I'd wheel the pram out with Kate in it and come home with old iron kettles and all sorts of things piled on top of the poor child. And wonderful old clothes, amazing old clothes. And then I got a stall down at Paddy's Markets when it was still Paddy's Markets proper, when it was wonderful. And then Anne followed me down there. And we, at that stage, we were both living in Birchgrove, only a, a house away from each other. So we'd help each other into the taxi. And she was much smaller than I was. I'm sure people thought we were we were gay because we, you know, we were always together and helping each other get into the market because it was a big rush to get your table and everything. And that went on for a couple of years. And Bill would come down from work and pick me up on Friday night and we'd go off and have Chinese food at the, and then go home and, and start all over again for the next week. And then at the same time there was something wonderful happening. Some friends of ours in advertising, mainly more of Bill's, not of mine, had opened a shop in Wallara, uh, which only opened every six months. They would go out and find and buy. They'd scour the countryside for wonderful old advertising mirrors, uh, clothing, old clothing, anything old that was unusual. Advertising signs, just extraordinary stuff. Stuff that was never regarded as antique, but interesting. Nostalgia. Now vintage stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And... They would ask, they'd send out invitations to this once a six-month event. And we'd all queue up there, desperate to get in. And then you'd go into this magic wonderland of beaded dresses and just, just stuff you couldn't believe, you know. And eventually they, I think they did this about three times, and then they decided... Grant decided, Grant had shares in Coca-Cola and he was rich and had a wonderful Art Deco house in, oh, somewhere in before clues, and um, not Uncle Jack's, but um, he he decided that he'd like to open it on a, a weekend basis. He invited uh, Anne and, and Leo, myself and Bill, and someone called Charlie Carney, and and we we would sh- f- go out and find stuff all week and get it ready, and then we'd people would be queuing up outside the door to get in, and then we'd open it and they'd pile in, just buy what we'd bought, you know, and we did quite well, and that went on for quite a while. At some stage, Nimrod began, and I went to the first night with John Hargraves in it and Jane Harders and Anna Volsker and 
Oh, this is amazing. And we, we continued to go to their shows. And eventually I said to Bill, look, I, I, I think I've got to get back into acting. At the same time period, Hilary Lindstedt landed in Australia. Well, it had all happened, actually. She came before I left Australia. The fact is that the graduate theatre, the graduate theatre began, and it was mainly begun by the, the, the people who'd been in SUDS. And the wonderful man who had originated play school at the ABC, Alan Kendall. He was the leading light in Suds, very fine actor. Also a fantastic tennis player on the on the circuit, professional circuit. And he he got the graduate theatre going. So this is a time too where actor training didn't exist really, so it was no. through the university experience that actors yeah. learnt their craft. Yeah. But it was big theatre. Yeah. You know, it was out there. I learned how to project my voice at university. I did. And then I had to unlearn all that because theatre changed. Became more intimate. Mm. Yeah. But it, all sorts of things happened at once. The Graduate Theatre put on a play with Hilary Lin Linstead in it. So she, was, she acted, did she? Because mm. she became a big agent. Yes. But she, when she came here, she, she was Viscount Linley's daughter, I think, and um, she. But she was an actress, and she'd followed a musician out here. Lovely young, lovely man, lovely, and they married. Her first, almost as soon as she hit Sydney, her first job was on ABC Radio playing Eliza in Pygmalion. And I think she got a few acting jobs, I, but I don't know, you see, I left for five years and when I came back, everything was different. But it, it, it was such a success that they put it on again the next year, but she didn't do it and they asked me to do it. And then I did Man of Mode with Terry Clark in it. And, um, and he and I were, were, had become good friends. And around that time, Bill just came home one night and he just cried and said, look, I'm so unhappy. And we were trying to bring up two very young children. We'd opened a shop. We were absolutely flat out 24 hours a day trying to cope with everything. And his real love was, was, was in the antique business. And... And he, he just sort of broke down and said, I, I just can't, I'm being forced into just being an accountant and there's nothing creative in it. And I said, look, let's, let's do something different. I want to be an actress. So it's like murder will out, you know. <laughs> I'd sat on it for 10 years or more and, and I just thought I've got to do it. So I rang Hillary and said, I want to be an actress but I don't know how to do it and I know I need to get an agent she said leave it to me 
So she got in touch with Faith Martin. Faith Martin sent someone to see me. And then my first job was this children's play with um, Australian Theatre for Young People with Mike Morris. Now, I'd met Mike Morris somehow. I had met him and he was crazy. He was Scottish. He was a Scot. He was a mad camp Scot, but really good, you know, very talented. And he he just he he just wanted really crazy people. Anyway, he cast me as Old Queen Cole, and there was that delicious Carol Skinner, wonderful young man who just couldn't contain his laughter. We laughed so much that the the lady who was running it threatened to to fine us if we didn't stop laughing. But it was all so funny, you know. We 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 created this madness of a play and unbeknownst to me Marjorie Rice came to see me in that and sent me back a little note. Marjorie was the teacher who'd changed my life. Of course, of course. But I never heard from her again and she must have been quite an age then and I didn't know where she was. So then you did the great Australian play. Well, before that, there was a, a production at the Old Toad of uh, Lysistrata, or Lysistrata, whichever pronunciation you prefer, with an amazing cast of people. I mean, it was just like everybody that you ever think of. It. And uh, it was directed by Ted Craig. And um, Lysistrata was played by uh, Melissa... Chaffer, and um, I was cast as a, a, a Spartan woman, and oh God, we looked as though it, the costumes were just. Mr. Carpenter did the costumes. Kim. Yeah, and I mean, we looked as though it'd come out of a comic strip. And it was just, uh, Maggie Kirkpatrick was a Spartan woman and I was a Spartan woman, I can't remember who else. And it was a disaster, actually. It was, despite the fact that it had every good actor in it that you could think of, um, it, it, it was just hopeless. It, it, Ted somehow couldn't organise this amazing cast of people around this. And it was supposed to be a comedy and really it just it was falling flat despite the fact that Melissa was wonderful. And um, and I thought, well, um, and it was, it, it was full-on awful. And uh, Robin Lovejoy was furious. He came in, like, you know, the second last rehearsal and took over and stuff like that. Oh, it was really not a very good introduction to classical theatre at all. And I thought, I think, um, I think I've made a mistake. I think I'd better give up. And then Richard Ware had asked me to come over for uh, to audition for Summer of the Seventeenth Doll. I didn't know a great deal about that play at that stage, except that it had been, you know, the play that won things and went to England, etc. So what is this? Is the early seventies? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. It would have been 1971, I think. Right. And um, and Melissa Jaffa was going to play Olive 
he was asking me to audition for Pearl. Uh, Bill Hunter was Rue. And uh, the girl that had been picked on by Beryl Cheers was going to play Bubba. So three of us came straight from that disaster to this wonderful play. And um, once again, I, I was worried that I wasn't good enough or that I didn't know enough. And I remember saying that to Richard. I said, look, you know, I just, I, I just don't quite always know what I'm doing. He said, look, it's all right. You're all right. Uh, just do what you normally do. Um, and I had a huge success in that role because I knew that lady. Well, I, I guess the echoes, my, echoes of your aunts. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Echoes mm. of my aunts and the people I'd grown up with, you know, Mrs Tut down the, down the street and somebody else. I mean, they were all... Uh, I knew who they were. All of my aunts and my grandmother and my mother had an amazing common thing of going, when they were all talking about something serious, going, I remembered this, you know. And I remembered my mother, you know, saving string and, and always being in an apron and stuff like this. And there were just a whole lot of body stuff that I remember. People pulling down their corsets. I used that. I used that. Okay. And, um, and fortunately, Catherine Brisbane picked up on all of that and made a, she wrote a most wonderful review, said that I was a real discovery. So, and that set me on my path because they were still writing those Australian women into plays and, and TV at that stage. And I had a whole career mapped out for me for at least another 10 years, I think, playing that sort of woman. I think it'd be wonderful if you could return to the doll and play Emma, the mother, this I've time. always wanted to. Emma understood everything. She, she grew up... She, she, she's the poor man's orange, the harp in the south kind of Very lady. Very much so, yeah. You know, she grew up in those tenements. She'd seen life... She knew everything, but she still had humour and she still had a heart and she loved Olive and she couldn't bear what happened to her, really. Interesting thing about that production was at the end of it, I, I played Pearl uh, walking out of there triumphing over Olive and a couple of times people hissed me. I thought, that's fantastic. But we took it to the Perth Festival the next year, in 72. And he, uh, Richard asked me to change the ending. He said, I want you to do it as though you realise that Oliver's had something that you haven't. And it was so much more effective. Really? It was beautiful. Yeah. And that was a lesson that you can do the same play in a thousand different ways. All the time I've been working, there have been discoveries about what works, what doesn't, about timing. Early on I was cast 
always because of my, my personality was big, my actual real personality was big and funny. I was a funny lady. And people tend to, to cast me because they thought that would spill over into the role. And it did, it did. But it also became my, my problem. And I didn't realise it. Um, because a lot of the, the things that I was cast in were very shallow. It's very shallow humour sometimes always to be cast as this caricature. Yeah. And so... It wasn't until Rex Cramphorn got me down to Melbourne to do a wonderful play called Summer. God, it was an extraordinary role. It was a hugely dramatic role. It was like a Yugoslav lady who was dying of cancer. She actually dies on stage in the end. And, and Rex rang me that night and I said, are you sure you've got the right Maggie? Uh, I mean... No one had ever offered me a role like this before. I always did funny roles, character roles. And he laughed in that funny, gentle way that he had. And he said, yes. Rex and friends had come up recently to, uh, to Sydney to do classes with a really wonderful speech lady who worked with the uh, Shakespearean company who'd come across to Sydney to do these classes and a lot of it was to do with breathing and finding the rhythm of the line and the poetry in it and so we spent the, la the first fortnight of the rehearsal we had five weeks rehearsal we spent the first fortnight finding the rhythm and breathing into it was totally extraordinary for me. And I, I was panicking, of course, because I thought, I'm, I'm not learning the lines properly, you know. It was the, it was the movement of the script and the, the feeling for it and, and the truth of it, the truth of it. That's what he was always looking for. And, but I was able to work toward that truth with all the breathing and the and the slowness and the pace and everything because because I'd learnt the lines, more or less. Yes. Now, the actor's palette is uh, very much um, improves with one's life experience. So I imagine in your mid-80s, you'd be a pretty good actor by now. Do you think that's true, that you've got better as you got older? Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm much better now. I suppose the frustrating thing is there are fewer roles for yes. somebody in the mid-80s. Yes, there are. Is it tough finding gigs, yes. opportunities? Yes. I don't ring my agent often because I know that they'll be in there fighting for me if there is anything. Do you think our um, older actors are cherished in this country? No. In that they're not given the opportunities or... In well, our modern society is all about young people. There's an emphasis on youth. You, 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 before we started the interview, you, may, you were telling me you went to the movies this morning hmm. and there was a really fascinating observation that you made about the other films coming yes, up. Yes, I was standing in the foyer looking at all the posters for what was coming and there were at least four with wonderful old English actresses in them 
Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith. Judy Dench. Judy Dench. Um, Bill Nye's look, you, coming out. Yeah, Bill yeah. Nye's coming. But, but you name it, they've... The, and then, you know, about six weeks ago I saw um, the wonderful one with Imelda Staunton and uh, Celia uh, Timothy Spall. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they were fabulous, fabulous. Mm. And, and they're not being ignored. They're having things written for them. Hmm. Is there a role that uh, you would like to play or that you think you've, it's, it's now past you but you often cover Oh, them? yes, there are two. Yep. I, I always wanted to do Emma in The Doll, even though I can't play the piano. And, um, well, theatre is an illusion. It, I think indeed. We can, yes, we can get around that. And the other one is, is The Mother in Hard God. But both Aggie. of those virtually are beyond me now. I'm too old. <laughs> but, but that's it. But you've been cautious, and, and you're going to the gym, and you're eating well, and yes. all that sort of. But the other thing, I suppose, is that I, I have I've developed a confidence in myself now that even if I'm rejected, I think, well, that was their decision. I gave of my best, and that was not what they wanted. So, you know. What do, what do you love most about acting? I love the whole thing of the rehearsal, the people around, the people I'm working with and to. And I just love the whole atmosphere. Yeah. But I love creating that character. Yes. yes. There's nothing like it, is there? No. Yeah. You know it. Absolutely. It's great. This has been terrific. <laughs> Don't I have some lovely friends? Thanks, Maggie, for that great conversation. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? You should do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through our hosting platform, Wooshka. That's W-H-O-O-S-H-K-A-A. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers and I look forward to catching you next time on Stages.